Good morning. It's time to get started. And uh, we're going to be talking this next hour or so about the continua continuation of the Reformation as far as Christian education is concerned. And um, I know for young people, this is a question that is of interest, should be a question of interest, as you seek to find the education that God would have you to gain. And um, in the next hour, the following hour, we're going to be looking at the history of the Sabbath, and um, particularly from, from the time of the Reformation on, sort of an overview. There's not, you can't talk about everything in, in an hour, but then we're going to be looking at Adventism and its role in sharing the Sabbath message and some of the principles of Sabbath observance. I find that as I, <clears throat> as, I, um, as I look around the Adventist church today, it seems as though in many cases we've, we've actually regressed rather than progressed in our understanding of Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. And um, so we're going to be looking a little bit at, at the principles we find in the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy about Sabbath keeping after we look at some of the history and some of the issues that came out of those historical developments. Let's begin now with a word of prayer as we start, start talking about education. Father in heaven, today we pause because we confess our need for you, uh, our need for your Holy Spirit. We are but mortals, and we are dealing with immortal truth. And we just want to pray that you would take our hardened hearts, that you'll soften them by the presence of your Spirit, that you'll speak to us about Adventist education, Christian education. You'll help us to better understand some of the principles behind uh, Christian education, Adventist education. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're talking this week about Reformation, uh, revival and Reformation. And yesterday, I sort of, um, we, we sort of laid the groundwork, if you please, for our discussion about Reformation. I think I should just give a short preamble, sort of re reiterating some of those thoughts since... Not all of you were here yesterday. Revival and Reformation are two different things, but they have to go together. Uh, Mellon White speaks of revival as being a renewal of the heart, a renewing of the spirit, a reorganization of the, of the way the, the attitude and the spirit and the, and the mind relates to spiritual things. That's a miracle. We call it conversion sometimes, or the new birth, being born again of the spirit. That's what we consider a revival. And a ri revival must take place guided by the Holy Spirit. A reformation, on the other hand, signifies a reorganization of habits and practices and thoughts and ideas. So it's changing more or less the external life to match what is happening on the in internal. Does that make sense? And so what she says is revival and reformation are two distinct things. They each have their separate work, and in doing this work, they must blend if you have a revival without a reformation, it usually doesn't last long. It's usually just some sort of a charismatic, emotional type of experience where people cry and people feel feelings of ecstasy or of peace or happiness. Sometimes those, those feelings can come. Actually, you know, feelings are actually not very safe guides because feelings can be manipulated. Um, feelings are often largely resort of, a result of simple, for lack of a better uh, 
a better expression, simply hormonal responses of the body. I mean, they're neurotransmitters that make us feel a certain way, right? And so you find some religions, which I would hold as false religions, which I would hold do not bring people into harmony with God, which if you look at some of those who are even leading out in these religions, they're full of sin, open sin times, but yet they have these feelings of euphoria and ecstasy and happiness and joy, which is probably more or less brought about by the stimulation of their liturgy and the escalating of their songs and the the modulating of the, 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 the keys and the, the accelerating of the rhythm and simply hormonal responses. That's not a revival, is it? That's not a true revival. Sometimes, if we're not careful, even when we talk about prayer, even when we talk about prayer and the importance of prayer, sometimes I've heard even Adventists talking about prayer focusing on the feelings they have, the feelings of peace or joy or overwhelming happiness, whatever they have as they're participating in this prayer experience. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong. But that's not, all, that's not the only indication of revival that comes through prayer. Sometimes it's feelings of deep contrition and humility and poverty of soul and spirit that would indicate a revival that comes in answer to prayer. Are you with me? So we can't focus so much on just these feelings because while a revival may come with feelings, it doesn't have to be dependent upon a certain type of feeling. So if you have a revival without a reformation, you sometimes may, may just have that type of a euphoric experience without a real change. And what happens is those feelings don't last. They don't last. Um, if you have a reformation, a reorganization of the thoughts and ideas of the habits and practices, the externals of the life, without having a revival, what do you have then? You have change, which is often sort of just formalism. It's cold legalism. That's a good term for it. A reformation without a revival could easily just be legalism. I'm going to change the outside. I'm going to start doing this, 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 and this. And some people have enough, enough uh, willpower, I guess you might say, or enough uh, accountability and peer pressure, whatever the case may be, to actually change a lot in their life without having a real revival of the Spirit. And so that's why it's so important these two go hand in hand. Are you with me? So while we want and, and we pray and we ask for revival, we must be thinking, what are the ways in which we must reform our lives? What are the ways in which the, our lives have to change? And so I wish there, there are many things that we could talk about and try to look at from a hopefully a balanced, biblical, grace-filled balanced perspective between revival and reformation. Yesterday we talked about some of the principles of health reform. And um, I hope it was helpful. We were talking about some of the principles of how to determine whether something is, some, is a moral issue or whether it's not a moral issue. And that doesn't mean that we take moral issues, things that aren't moral issues, and say, well, I don't have to do them. Because the Christian who is having a revival in his heart and his life seeks for the highest ideal that God would have us reach, okay? And so, but, but, but unfortunately, sometimes in conservative, there have been two extremes, two um, ditches, you might say, that Adventists have fallen into. One is saying, you know, none of it really matters. That's all legalism, it's all formalism, our relationships, all that is important. So don't worry about the standards. Don't worry about those things because that's not really important anyway. That's one ditch that we can fall into. The other ditch is to say, you know what, everything that Ellen White says in the Spirit of Prophecy about health, about if you're not doing it, you're going to be lost. You're going to be lost. I saw you eat something with some, you know, white flour in it. 
there was some baking soda in that cookie. There was some vinegar in that salsa. And I'm not saying any of those counsels aren't important. You understand what I'm saying? But there's an ideal which God wants us. Something better is the watchword of all true living. It's the best. And so we're supposed to be using positive motivation to inspire young people to want the very best for their lives because the more we take advantage of the best out there, the more advantages we're going to have to holy living and to developing a character after God's character. And so the motivation is not, I feel guilty if I had something with some baking soda in it. The motivation is, I want to always to find what is the very best for me. And so I don't become fixated and legalistic and, and judgmental and condemnatory. And this, I think, is one of the ditches that as conservative Adventists, too many of us have fallen into, where we begin, we like those checklists. We like those specific things where we can say, okay, let's just become vegan. Boom. Well, there are times and places. I hate to say this. There are times and places where a vegan diet isn't the healthiest. I know I could be martyred for that. <laughs> but you understand my point. My point is to seek the very healthiest, not a checklist. That's my point. I'll tell you a story, and we're getting off the subject here of education, but we're, the, the, the groundwork has to be laid for what we're talking about because the same principles apply to Sabbath keeping as well. Well, I don't know. Sabbath keeping in most cases is, is not a matter of the is not a matter of preference, it's a matter of principle. But the principle, one of the principles that I'm saying, talking about here is very applicable to Sabbath keeping. And that is, it's not about checklists. It's about really keeping the Sabbath. Okay, and we're going to be talking about that in the next period. Um, one time I was in Hungary. And... Um, I was speaking to a, a, a gathering of people there, and um, I, have a, I was born with uh, gluten intolerance, um, celiac condition, so that I can't eat anything that has gluten in it. Now, in those days, this was quite a few years ago, I won't disclose how many, but um, you know, today, if you're gluten-free, it's, it's relatively easy. I mean, there's so many products and labeling and everything else, but um, when I was a kid, it wasn't that way, and certainly at this point, I was, I was a teenager, my late teens, I was speaking for a camp meeting in, in Hungary, and, and in Europe, it, it just wasn't easy. I mean, everything's bread, and what isn't bread is like cheese. And so I'm a vegan, and I'm gluten-free. And so I still remember, I still remember um, um, going to a cafeteria meal after meal and not finding anything to eat. I mean, nothing. Like, well, I shouldn't say nothing. There was cucumber salad. I ate cucumber salad for three days. And I, st I still remember, we left Saturday night from the camp meeting in Hungary and drove all night to Budapest, got on a train, and went across Romania into Bulgaria. And by the time I got to Sofia, I had had cucumbers, and that's about it, for, I don't know, three or four days. And um, I remember trying to carry my luggage and just shaking uncontrollably. <coughs> because cucumbers just aren't very... Um, they aren't exactly complete nutrition, you understand. And I remember that first meal in Sofia in, the, in an apartment of someone who was letting us stay with them, or maybe it was just we were eating with them. Um, I still remember 
looking at this potato casserole, which was gluten-free, and having to make a decision whether I was going to eat it or not, it had milk in it. And I was a vegan. Now, I believe, I, I still seek to be a vegan. I still believe that the vegan diet is the healthiest. But I made a decision at that point that eating something with milk in it was probably healthier than sticking to my vegan diet. Are you with me? Now, the principle is God wants the best. God wants us to seek the best. There are some things, and we talked about yesterday, get the recording if you didn't hear it. There are some things that are matters of principle and we never yield on. The other things, there are times when, when we can't have the best or when to avoid offending others, we might have to um, yield our preferences. So anyway, that's sort of a preamble to get this relationship between revival and reformation. Are you with me? Um, revival, something inside, or a re reformation you could think of in coarse terms as something outside. They must go together. They must go together. And a true revival will bring reformation in the life. And um, so let's, let's, let's talk now about education because <clears throat> there's something that's very significant about every reformation that has taken place. Every reformation that has taken place has always been accompanied by a change, a reformation in, in, in education. You see that in, the, in ancient Israel. You see that in modern Christianity. And we'll pick up, let's just pick up at the time of the reformation because we don't have a lot of time today to talk about this, and there's a whole lot of things that I wish I could cover. But Martin Luther wrote the following, I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. Now, this, this statement to me has greater word, weight because it was quoted also by our, our, um, the servant of the Lord in the book Great Controversy. And so many Adventists are familiar with this passage from Daubigny. And uh, Martin Luther here is saying something very strong. He's saying that there's only, there's, there's only one way an institution cannot uh, be corrupt. There's only one way it's safe for young people to be in an institution. That is if that institution is unceasingly occupied with the Word of God. I'll tell you what, I have to stop, and I have to pause, and I have to say, wow, how many institutions fit that kind of a bill today? How many? It's hard to find. It's hard to see. You see, there's some, there's some sort of a concept of Christian education today which says something like this. We want a Christian education which gives people the same education they get everywhere else except they have a Bible class. Are you familiar with that sort of concept of Christian education? We're going to have a Bible class. You're going to have required religion classes. And if you've ever taught required religion classes, you know that can, be, that can be a painful experience. With students who are coming and basically saying, you know, just get me, give me what I need to know to pass the class, to get an A, and that's all there is to it. Because this is the only real emphasis on spirituality they have in their experience there at the school. And Christian education, I'm not just talking about Adventist education. Unfortunately, sometimes our Adventist schools have, have uh, wandered that direction as well. But Christian, Christian education in general has come more and more to be just a regular education with a Bible class, maybe a good environment. 
you know, maybe a, 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 a more Christian environment, hopefully, in some cases. But that's not the way, um, the, that's not the way the reformers envisioned educational reform, is it? They saw an institution unceasingly occupied with the Word of God where, where they rejected the systems of, of uh, thinking and the systems of education, the systems of training, which were commonplace in their day, and they replaced it instead with the study of the Word of God. And some of you are going to say, well, how in the world, how in the world can you be unceasingly occupied with the Word of God? Is it possible to have that much of an emphasis on God's Word and still be able to get an education that is useful, that is practical, that is relevant in today's world? Uh, that's a very good question, and it's a question that we could spend a lot of time talking about, a lot of time discussing, but I want to just give you some, some concepts here as we begin of, of what um, the Reformers, I believe, were trying to accomplish. In order to put this kind of a quantity of, a, of an emphasis on the Word of God into their educational system, they recognize that something has to come out. Are you following? In other words, we have to be able to sit down like the reformers did and say, okay, there's 24 hours in a day. There's four hours in a, four days, in, uh, excuse me, there are four years in the average college, you know, training, right? At least here and now. So if you have four years, um, whether that's eight semesters, I suppose, or if you're on the quarter system, eight semesters with so many days of class, so many hours per day, you have a finite amount of time in order to, uh, to spend in education, right? If we want to put more Bible emphasis in, something has to come out, right? And so the Reformers, I believe, looked at what was, what was really necessary and what wasn't really necessary. And they began trying to determine what can we eliminate from our educational system so that we can have more biblical input. And that's the same battle that has taken place in education reform ever since. The battle is not so much what are the bad things that we want to get rid of. It's the, what is the best thing that we want to add. Okay? Because many of the things that we're going to talk about when it comes to education reform, maybe some of, the, some of them aren't sinful or immoral. But they begin displacing those other things that are better. And that's why they become problematic. And so Martin Luther established um, a Protestant system of education there at Wittenberg. And that became the foundation of the Reformation. Young people came from all over Europe to Wittenberg to study. It's interesting, some of them, some of them uh, would even come. Some of them were Catholic young people studying for the priesthood. And they would come to study in maybe Switzerland or one of the Catholic, you know, um, Catholic cantons or states there. And then they, unknown to their superiors, they would slip over to Wittenberg and enroll there and get a Protestant education, go back and start teaching the principles of Protestantism. There was a hungering and a thirsting for the Word of God. And the Reformation spread largely on, um, on the backs of the educational system, educational reforms. However, educational reform did not last very long in Protestantism. Um, there's a number of intriguing theories and stories. Um, you, can, you, can, uh, you can give some credit, no doubt, to the Counter-Reformation, which actually targeted the educational systems of Protestantism and sought to subvert them um, because they recognized the importance of the educational system. I, I have... Um, 
I have uh, in my, at home uh, a book called The Secret History of the Oxford Movement, which um, purports to detail, it's a, it's a very old book, it purports to detail the Jesuit involvement in that change which took place at Oxford. So there may be some truth to that, but in any case, the educational systems of, uh, of the Protestants began to imitate more and more the traditional educational system of, of Europe. When we come now to America, you have a, you have a, a, um, you have a, a desire by American Protestants to establish, again, a pure system of education. And if you look at the early schools in America that were founded, they were founded largely as seminaries where they mostly studied the Bible. At Harvard, for example, every student was required to get up at 5.30 in the morning and have devotions. You don't think of that. When you think of Harvard today, you don't think of a place where they're required to study the Bible. But they had to have a written report of what they studied every day. I mean, this was something where they wanted the students to be immersed in the Word of God. And so whether you talk about Harvard, whether you talk about Yale, whether you talk about um, any of the other, what we today consider Ivy League colleges, most of them started as religious schools where the study of the Word of God was paramount. And um, that, that would change as we enter into the 19th century. So when we come down to Adventism, we're going to be talking a little bit about Adventists' first forays into education. Adventists far, uh, first started the Battle Creek College, and um, I won't go into all the details of the history of Battle Creek College, but essentially Battle Creek College was started with the encouragement of people like James and Ellen White, but there was not a lot of counsel given. At the, at the early years of Battle Creek College, this was before Ellen White had written most of her works on education, there wasn't a lot of counsel given except that we should have our schools. There was an impetus, there was a desire to be able to have our own schools where, where people could be trained in order to not have Sabbath issues and other issues. We wanted to be able to train our own medical stu students and proper, proper theories of medicine and healing, et cetera, et cetera. But there wasn't a lot of counsel given about education. If you study the history of Adventist education, some scholars have concluded that, that um, sent, uh, perhaps partly because the educational system got started before a lot of Ellen White's counsel was even written, the system of education within Adventism has never fully conformed to the counsel that Ellen White gave. In other words, often Ellen White was speaking not so much as to how to establish schools. A couple of them she did in, was involved with establishing Avondale and Madison and, uh, and so forth. But um, most of the time she was writing things to try to reform our own schools because they'd already, they'd already been founded. They were already in existence. And how do you start a college? You do the same thing that the other colleges are doing, right? You do the same thing. That's the way you start a college. And so... Um, the professors, the early professors at Battle Creek, they had a, a, a European or American education where they were just used to thinking the way that the rest of the educators thought, and that's the way they started their schools. And so there began a, there began a struggle between the 1880s um, when Battle Creek was started until the um, early 1900s when Ellen White died. There was a bit of a tug-of-war, constant tug-of-war between between the way schools were being operated and the ideals which Ellen White was presenting and constantly writing more about. In the end, Ellen White would write about education almost more than any other specific topic of our ministry and of our, our evangelism. Uh, education 
uh, was a very, uh, she wrote very prolifically on the topic of education. And so to just cover some highlights of how educational reform began in the Adventist church, um, we, we go to Battle Creek College, and as um, two young men are very prominent in the history of ed Adventist education reform. And some of you, and probably maybe most of you, are familiar with their names, E.A. Sutherland and Percy T. McGann. They came as young people to Battle Creek College. And um, as I recall, it was Sutherland who, in order to go to school, he didn't have money to go to school. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And um, so he sold his pony. His pony's name was Mouse. I always thought that was funny. He sold his pony so that he would have enough money to go to, to Battle Creek. And there at Battle Creek, he and Percy McGann spent quite a bit of time in the home of Ellen White. And um, they were able to, to listen to what she was teaching about many different subjects and, and, and hear from her. And, of course, they began studying her writings as well. Later, to make a long story short, um, um, Sutherland would, would go on to become um, the, the founder of Walla Walla College. And it was at Walla Walla that he, um, he began doing some things that the administration really didn't like. Well, actually, he was teaching. I'm sorry, he was teaching still. This was, I may be getting my stories confused. Um, this is while he was teaching, perhaps, at Battle Creek. He, um, he, Percy, became a, Percy became a vegetarian. And um, one, one day, um, Sutherland wanted him to go fishing. They always like to go fishing. And Percy said, no, I'm not really interested in going fishing. And Sutherland said, well, why not? You've always been going fishing before. And he said, well, I don't really, I don't really want to um, eat fish anymore. I've become a vegetarian. That seemed really strange because most Adventists weren't vegetarian. And um, the food in the cafeteria wasn't even vegetarian. And anyway, before long, Sutherland became a vegetarian as well. And... Uh, Sutherland's students in his Bible class began wanting to be vegetarian too. And so before long, they had to have a separate table in the cafeteria for the vegetarians, you see. And um, after a while, there are more people wanting to eat from the vegetarian table than there were from the regular uh, food line. And uh, the, the teachers actually got reprimanded. Um, uh, Prescott was the president of the college at the time, and he said, you know, you're causing... You're, you're causing a big deal about a non-important issue. You're causing trouble. And um, the men said, look, we're not trying to make them vegetarians. They're just following our example. Um, but it's interesting that after about a, a year or two, Prescott himself became a vegetarian. <laughs> and um, and the, the food articles of uh, meat was removed from the menu at the college, and um, still to this day, in most of our Adventist schools, um, meat is not served in the cafeteria. And there, there are some exceptions overseas, of course. But um, it's a very interesting history of how just one or two people can make a big difference. That's what we call Reformation. They weren't trying to make a big deal about it. They weren't trying to make people feel guilty. They were just happy people that were living the more abundant life, and others wanted to, to enjoy it as well, right? And so, so that made a difference. Well, when they came back to Battle Creek College later, um, Sutherland would be president of Battle Creek. Percy would also be uh, working in administration. 
and they wanted to continue implementing the counsel of the spirit of prophecy at Battle Creek. Now, Battle Creek was in the middle of a city. They had, I think, seven acres of land. It was not a very big, big campus, and they didn't have any space to be able to do the things that Ellen White was saying they needed to do. And we're going to talk about some of those things a little later. But um, one of the things was they, they, they said, we need to have practical training. And Ellen White said agriculture is the ABCs of education. So we need our students to be able to have some agricultural training. Well, there was no land for agriculture. And uh, so in a move that was calculated to be very unpopular, I'm sure, um, Percy McGann and E.A. Sutherland went out and plowed the ball field and made it into a vegetable garden. And um, they, began to, um, they began to try to implement Ellen White's counsel. Now, how do you think that went across? With the students, with many of the, the faculty, it didn't go across very well at all. In fact, at every step, Percy and McGann, as they tried to implement the counsels of Ellen White in Battle Creek, they met with more and more and more opposition. And it's really unfortunate what ended up happening. Um, I'm trying to make a long story short here, but um, what ended up happening is they were, they were opposed and opposed and criticized so much that, um, that uh, when Percy McGann's wife became sick, um, Ellen White wrote that it was the stress of those opponents who had um, criticized her husband so much. In fact, they had even, they had either, a rumor even circulated that Ellen White herself had written condemning the things that McGann and Sutherland were doing at, at Battle Creek. And, um, you know, they tried to, they, they, they eventually were able to move the college to Bering Springs, but there was still so much opposition that finally they went to general conference. Uh, Percy McGann's wife died, and Ellen White says, Ellen White says that there will be those who have her blood on her hands, on their hands, because of the vicious tongues that uh, were going about as these men simply tried to do what was right. And when they resigned at the general conference, there are some who said, see, finally they saw the light. They're trying, you know. And Ellen White said, these men are not to be viewed as failures. They have tried to do, they have tried to do what God called them to do, and they've done a noble work. And she defended them because of that. But you understand they were very controversial people within the Adventist Church at that time. There were many who did not support the things they were trying to do. And um, later, um, worn out and uh, wanting, needing some reprieve from the, call, uh, the political strain and the rest that came with administration, they spent some time on the riverboat, uh, the Morning Star with Ellen White and Edson White, and eventually that story leads us to the founding of Madison College, which is the one of the schools which Ellen White tried to help shepherd in its founding stage to be a, a model school following the principles of education that God would have them to follow. Now let's look at some of the counsel Ellen White says about how our schools should be different. Fundamentals of Christian Education, pages, page 289. The teaching in our schools is not to be the same as in other colleges and seminaries. It is not to be of an inferior order. order. The knowledge essential to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God is to be made the all-important theme. What is to be made the all-important theme? It's the knowledge of the truth for this time, right? It's the knowledge of what, the message of Adventism, which is to prepare people to be ready for God. The students are to be fitted to serve God not only in this life, but in the future life. The Lord requires that our schools shall fit students for the kingdom to which they are bound. Thus they will be prepared to blend in the happy, holy harmony of the redeemed. 
Now as never before, she says, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If this is the price of heaven, shall not our education be conducted on these lines? Now, this, this brings me to a very important point. I have heard many young people throughout the years uh, express disappointment because they came to a school where they believed that the principles of education, the true principles of education, higher education, were being taught. And they, they, they have expressed disappointment that, that they weren't converted by this school. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that the school is responsible for creating an environment, but true higher education comes through a connection of our mind with the divine mind, and that's something each individual student is responsible for. Your teachers can't truly give you true higher education in the Christian sense of the term. They can lead you, they can lead you to the fountain, they can create an atmosphere where it's conducive, but it's up to you to drink from that fountain and to connect your soul with the, with the, the infinite mind of God. And that's really where true higher education takes place. That's really where this true um, preparation for the kingdom of heaven takes place. It's not, a, it's not a magical place. It's not a magical formula. It's not a curriculum, as important as those things are. It's a personal thing that true education must become personal to us. Now, if we look at E.A. Sutherland, he wrote a book called Studies in Christian Education. I want to summarize how he contrasted the difference between true education, as he called it, uh, Christian education, and the world's understanding of education. And the first, the first um, item, I suppose, that is most important is the place of the Bible in education. Remember what Martin Luther said? Every institution which is not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. And so the Bible is to be paramount. It's to be the number one authority and guide in the educational system that God would have us to establish. Are you with me on that? And how can we do that? Well, there's a, a number of ways, and you'll see some as we go on through some of the rest of the list. You'll see how that can be accomplished. But... But, you know, it's not just that your Bible has to be a textbook in every class. It's not just that you can have a, it's not just that you, you know, have a devotional at the beginning of every class. Those are all important things. But where possible, throughout the, throughout the educational experience, biblical themes should be emphasized. And if in the morning you're studying the Bible on your own, if when you're coming to, to joint worships and you're, you're, you're singing hymns and scripture songs and you're, you're talking about the Bible, if you have your Bible classes, which are not, not, not unimportant, <laughs> even though we've talked about how that doesn't make it a Christian education. It's interesting, Madison, Madison College, which Ellen White said didn't need to be completely changed around to, completely, to, to be perfect, perfectly fit God's plan, God's ideal. It was close. Madison College didn't even really teach many Bible classes. But what they did have, they had an hour-long chapel every morning where Sutherland or another of the teachers would teach biblical principles, would teach from the Bible. And that was the way that many of them were inspired. Um, as you know, by, uh, Madison College was not really founded per se to train, teacher, um, to train, train preachers. It was really... The, the strength of Madison College was that it trained people with skills to go out and work in secular employment for themselves, 
but those people had a burden for soul winning and for the truth of the time so that they weren't out as self-supporting missionaries all across the South. And where they settled in communities and started churches and sanitariums and schools, today there are still churches in many of those communities. Today many of the, many of the schools like Pisgah Academy and other, other schools, Highland Academy, and you go down the list, um, many of those were started by um, Madison graduates. They didn't go out as preachers, you understand. But they had a huge impact of church planting because they, they didn't need to be supported by the church. They could go to places where the church didn't have money to send them. And they, hadn't, they weren't theologians, but they knew how to work, and they knew their Bibles, and they knew the Adventist message, and they believed in the, 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 the principle of every church member being a missionary, of every lay person being responsible for soul winning. So the Bible was, was paramount even without Bible classes. That's my point. Bible classes aren't even necessary for the Bible to be a, a, a to, to fill an a important role in the educational system. Now, um, another, another reform which uh, Sutherland writes about is the ancient and world, modern worldly classics. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the literature, the different, um, whether it's um, Greek literature or English literature, such as Shakespeare and others. The common educational system of the day says this is what you need to know in order to be educated, okay? And um, this is how Battle Creek Star College started too. They started with an emphasis on you need to learn Shakespeare and you need to learn the Greek mythology and you need to learn all of this different literature. And um, this is something that Ellen White was writing about continually and something from the very beginning, Madison said, we're not going to teach that. Now, if you don't teach that, that gives you opportunity to teach other things, right? You, you see how when you begin to remove some of these things that are non-essential, some of it may not always be all that bad, but some of it is bad. Um, when you begin to remove some of these non-essentials, it gives you time then to put other things into your program. And so that's one of the things that was taken out. Emulations, honors, and prizes. They saw that the, the whole system of all the different recognitions and academic um, um, clubs and, and uh, honors and so forth, they tended, not to, they tended not to promote or to recognize character development, but simple academic prowess, right? It, simply was, it was simply a form of academic competition. And they said, we don't need that. You can be gifted, you can be very gifted intellectually, but you know the most gifted intellectually do not always make the most success in the kingdom of God, or even in the world for that matter, because there's issues of character which are far more important and which are often overlooked. And I'm telling you, friends, even today, I find that we still have a tendency to have a lot of almost uh, reverence for people who have gone to those very exclusive universities or have those very high degrees. And I'm not saying those aren't good accomplishments, and I'm not saying God doesn't call some people to study those places. But I am saying is that that's only a very limited part of education. And what, what, what the world says, wow, they're eminently qualified and educated, according to the spirit of prophecy principles and biblical principles of education, they might have received an, uh, about a third of an education because they received a very intense mental education. But their physical and their spiritual training may have been completely neglected. So I think sometimes we're too quick 
to even today to have this high respect for the intellectual achievements when really God's estimation of true education includes that well-rounded mental, physical, and spiritual education. It's, it's at places like Weimar that I think the greatest education takes place, where you have the mental, physical, and spiritual. That's why I spent 15 years teaching at Washington Hills Academy in college. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in Christian education. I'm a firm believer that that's the real Ivy League. <laughs> that's the real elite school, is when you have a, a complete education. And it, it, it produces a product, a, a graduate, which may not, may not be recognized by the worldly honors and, and recognitions, but can think and do and perform better than many of these who have received what I call one-third education. So I get off the subject here, but let's move on. Reforms in diet, we already talked some about that. Diet reform is a part of education reform. The proper location for schools and the country life of students. Ellen White writes significantly about that. And um, I, I, when, I was, when I was graduating from college and I was, I was considering what to do, one of my, one of my um, options was to go to Southern California to work as an associate pastor and help them start a, a school, to expand a school from an eighth grade school to a 12th grade school. And so um, I was actually, I was debating the different options I had for, for employment. And I studied in the spirit of prophecy about schools, and I was very familiar with the council about having schools in the country. And so I'm thinking, why in the world would I go to start a school in the city? Because that's sort of a difficult place, you know? And then I read a statement where Ellen White says, Ellen White's always pretty balanced, you know? Very balanced. Um, Ellen White says there are some people that can't move out of the city, and for those young people, we need to establish schools in the city to be able to train them. And I said, oh. And it just happened that day that I was praying that God would give me indication, and so I saw that as God leading for me to go and to work for those young people. And, um, but I can tell you it's difficult. It's difficult. I shared with you some of the struggle yesterday. Without a work-study program, what do 14-year-old what do, what do boys do? They can't sit still. You can't tell them, well, just sit and read your Bible. You know, um, they're not used to that, and they're certainly, they have a lot of energy. And so even though it wasn't what I thought was ideal, at times I played with them games. I played sports with them because we had no other options, right? And so um, um, anyway, we'll move, on to, we'll move on to some of those uh, a little later. But um, simplicity in buildings is one of the, one of the principles that um, E.A. Sutherland writes about. Um, now, sometimes I might think they took it a little to an extreme, um, when they moved to Battle Creek, um, from, when they moved from Battle Creek to Berrien Springs, they, they applied this principle of simplicity in buildings. And, um, well, the first winter they were there in, Battle, in Berrien Springs, they didn't have any dorms built yet, so they stayed in tents. Have you ever been to Berrien Springs in the winter? Um, that's ultra simplicity in buildings. Um, uh, tents, but when they did build dorms at Emmanuel Missionary College, as they called it then, when they did build dorms, they did not install any heat. Because they said many of our graduates are going to be going to places to work where they don't have heat, like central heat in their buildings. And so they need to not be spoiled. If we, if we spoil them in college, how are we going to send them out as missionaries? That was basically the idea. So 
the principle is this. Now, I've spent two years at, at, at Bering Springs, and I can tell you I wouldn't have survived, I don't think, if it hadn't been for heat. And I suppose they must have had some sort of local heat in the rooms. They were each responsible for maintaining or something. But there wasn't a, this, this comfort you know, of central heat and air and all this that we're accustomed to today. And um, they, they, wanted, they wanted buildings to be practical and useful and utilitarian but not to be luxurious so that people would not go out as missionaries. Manual training and the practical in education. This is very, very, very important, and I wish I had more time to spend just on this topic alone. I believe that um, Ellen White was far ahead of her day when it came to manual training. Now, we could spend some time talking about the other schools and how they at times, Oberlin College and others, had similar principles of manual training. But Ellen White says some things that are very, very interesting about manual training. One of them in the book of education, she says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty close. She says that um, an education derived chiefly from books leads to shallow thought and superficial thinking. That is to say that your mental processes improve when you learn to work with your hands. And that is a concept the world has not yet fully grasped because they believe to be really successful academically, you need to not have to work, you need to not have to do any of those other things. You just need to focus on those academic pursuits. You need to study, you need to, to memorize, you need to have the, you know, your good resources, the library, whatever it is, but academic, academic, academic. And um, Ellen, Ellen White says, no, to be really, to, 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 to develop the brain as it's meant to, to develop, you need to work with your hands. And um, a number of years ago, I was listening to an NPR program and I wish I could find a transcript of it or get a recording of it. I've looked some. I've never been able to find it again. But the, this program on NPR, they were um, interviewing an author. And the author's book was something like, um, the title was like Hands. And the subtitle was it, their Manual Training's Impact on American Culture or something like that. And I've never been able to quite find it. I've looked and I found some other books and it turned out not to be the right books. But he was giving some very interesting statistics. He gave an, uh, an example of, a, of a engineer, an engineering firm, a large aerospace engineering form, firm that, hi, that employed thousands of engineers. And they had a particular hiring procedure where they would go to the best engineering schools. They would interview the top of the classes, you know, the top students in the classes, and then they would, um, they would hire the, the, the select um, elite you know, engineering graduates from the best schools. And after a certain point, this is sometime in the 80s or 90s, after a certain point, their hiring practices began to fail. Um, what they found is they were hiring engineers, but some of them just were not competent, and they were not capable of doing the work that they were given to do as they were expected to. And so they actually commissioned a study to see what were, the, what, were the, what were the underlying factors that made an engineer successful in working for this aerospace company or not working for this aerospace, uh, not successful working for this company. And so that they could adjust their hiring practices to be able to hire only the, the engineers which would be most successful. And do you know what the study found? The one thing that the studies found was consistent with all of the engineers who were able to come in, take up jobs, see them from beginning to completion successfully. The one thing they had in common, they had maintained their own automobiles during high school. Mm 
they had practical training with their hands. Now, who would have thought? These were brilliant people. But some of them were more brilliant on the computer or you know, intellectually than they were practically. And they found that, that those who didn't have manual experience working with their hands, they weren't able to perform as an engineers the way they had. And so they adjusted their hiring practices to find students or graduates who had practical skills, practical training in their background. Isn't that interesting? This is like 100 years after Ellen White writes these things. And, um, and um, it, it's, it's being demonstrated to be true. So manual labor is very, very important. And I can say, I don't know a lot about a lot of other schools, but I can say from my time at Washta Hills, we have had a, we have had a, a work-study program, of course, from the beginning. And, and probably similar to here at Weimar, uh, we have half a day in classes and half a day in work. And um, some people would say, that that is going to give students an academic disadvantage, OK? There's less time in classes, because that's about almost 50% less time in classes than a typical student, a typical school would have. Um, be, besides having half a day and half a day, one of our days, one day a week, one out of five, so um, there's actually four, only four class days for academic classes, half a day. The other morning or afternoon, the other half a day, is spent in what we call vocational training, which is a class itself in one of those areas. So it might be in, in um, cabinet making or in electrical work or construction or, or um, dressmaking or food nutrition or whatever the different practical skills are. But that's, that's, that's one half of a day out of the five. So you're only left with four half days for your classes. Besides that, we're a small school, and we don't have all of the lab facilities and all the library facilities and all those things that are understood to be the most important for academic excellence, right? And so the conventional wisdom would tell you that students are going to suffer academically. Oh, add to that, we spend, um, stu our students spend a lot of time on mission trips. Um, many of them will, will go on three or four mission trips during their four years there, which is going to take out weeks of their schooling, which is, you know, it's academically challenging to keep up with classes when you're not even there. And so all of this would add up to say, you know, you should be suffering academically. But what we have found from our standardized test scores is that, is that um, students do not suffer academically from that program. Um, we have we have not only scored our students have not only scored higher than national average and state average, but even then compared to other Adventist academies, even other Adventist academies such as like Loma Linda Academy, where you expect the academics to be quite high, we have had consistently over five years, over ten years, consistently higher average standardized test scores than Loma Linda Academy. And you're saying, how does that happen? I think it happens through two things, spending time in the Word of God and manual training. Maybe also your rural environment and other things that keep the distraction to a minimum. But God's plan for education does work. It does. And I've seen through my years working with education, I've seen evidence that you don't come up in second place when you follow God's plan for education. And um, how, how can you do that? Well, one of the problems 
with uh, one of the problems with um, typical education is that there's a lot of time spent in games and sports. And now I'm not here. I already told you yesterday and briefly alluded to it today that when I went to California and I didn't have a better option, I spent time playing sports with my students. Okay? But I'm here to say that that's not the ideal. Okay? And what happens often is that games and sports displaces time that should be and could be spent on better things. When you look at the things that Ellen White says we should train, from everything from posture to practical skills that she lists every student should have, every man should have, every woman should have, when you look at all the classes, all the things that, that we're supposed to teach our students, I can tell you, you can't teach it all in four years. You really can't. I mean, it really needs to be started in the home and, and through, through high school and through college. Imagine if every home was teaching those things and the, the high Adventist academies and Adventist colleges were just continuing on that foundation. You could have some very, very extraordinary people graduating from Adventist schools. That's God's plan, okay? But instead, we have, we have these things which aren't the best and they crowd out a lot of our time. And you know what gets crowded out first? I'll tell you, but my theory is, when you get these type of entertainment things, the first thing to go is usually not the academics. The first thing to go is usually the spiritual side. And we don't, even, we don't plan it. We don't say, okay, I'm gonna replace the spiritual training with games and sports and entertainment. We don't plan it that way. We just think, oh yeah, that'd be nice, you know, it'll attract students and we'll do this, this, and this. And we don't calculate what it costs us. And so we're given specific counsel about, about sports and games and so forth. Um, we have uh, finally um, uh, Sutherland writes about student self-government and Christian democracy, teaching students to be self-disciplined, not just to conform to a mold while they're there. And uh, lastly, training missionaries to be self-supporting, a layman's movement. The point of Adventist education is not to treat a whole, train a whole bunch of pastors. Unfortunately, we have deviated from the Reformation principle of the priesthood of all believers. And in copying the educational thinking of the rest of the world, even the rest of the Christian world perhaps, we have adopted a model of education which forces young people to choose either secular training or spiritual training. So if you want to become a pastor, you don't really learn anything practical. And if you want to go into a secular field, whether it's science or whatever, you're not going to learn. I mean, you have your little, your little Bible classes, but you're not going to be trained to be a soul winner. God's plan for education is that every Adventist young people be trained the three angels' messages and how to share them. Whether you're going to become a doctor, a plumber, a welder, a pediatrician, a teacher, a lawyer, whatever your vocation is, even if you're going to become a pastor, you are supposed to learn the principles of the Bible, the principles of sharing the Bible successfully. That was a principle of the Reformation, the, the priesthood of all believers. It's a principle that as we continue and complete the Reformation, I believe we have to revive within Adventism and within Adventist education. My years involved with ASI, most of the reason that I got involved with ASI was because I saw it fitting so closely with my burden as an educator. That was that every person, no matter what their business, their occupation, their career, those livelihoods are simply the way that they pay their bill while their calling is to be a worker for God. 
their calling is to be a missionary for God. And no group exemplifies that more than the business people of ASI who feel like their business exists for the purpose of winning souls for the kingdom of God. That's what every, ASI should not exist. Because every Adventist should be that, you know what I mean? I mean, it, it would just be a second church or something, you know? I mean, I, I understand there's some differences. ASI has some, is, is started as a supporting institutions and so forth. But you understand my point. Every Adventist should have that mentality. Every Adventist should have this idea that I, I don't care what I'm going to do to pay my bills. My goal is to be a soul winner for Jesus in some way. It doesn't mean you have to preach. It doesn't mean you have to have a... It doesn't mean you have to have an evangelistic series. You know, I, I, I can think of many examples of those who have found that being a layman can be more effective in reaching hearts than being in full-time ministry. I, I, um, I think of those, I, I think of a, a gentleman who went as a missionary to South America, and um, he was going to be, I don't remember which country it was, but he, is, he, he was a self, from a self-supporting background, and he decided he wanted to go do Bible work in this area. There's only a small group of Adventists, and they wanted to start a, a church and do, you know, evangelize the region. So he started going door to door, and he found that people were completely closed. He was there for six months, and he didn't get any Bible studies. Um, there was no interest in studying with this Adventista, you know. And so after six months, he became discouraged. He opened a general store in the village, gave up, said, I'm just going to go into secular work. Forget it. Six months later, he had more Bible studies than he could ever handle because the people were coming to him to get things. And on a casual basis, he made their friendship. He won their confidence. And then they were willing to listen to him. Imagine whether you're doing carpet cleaning or cabinet making or whatever it is, people are coming to you or you're going into their homes and you have an, a, an openness and an opportunity to witness to them that a pastor will never have, a Bible worker will never have, an evangelist will never have. That's why we need every Adventist young people being trained to be a soul winner. There are people the pastor just will not reach. You can't. If you, uh, people not... Uh, there, we just need, we need this revival of the priesthood of all believers within Adventism today. I don't know how I can, how I can um, emphasize that anymore. Something better is the watchword of education, the law of all true living. Whatever Christ asks us to renounce, he offers in its stead something better. Often the youth cherish objects, pursuits, and pleasures that may not appear to be evil, but that falls short of the the highest good. And let me just stop here and pause. I feel that in many of these things, whether it's in the, uh, some of the literature that we read that we say, well, it's not really harmful, whether it's in some of the entertainment that we watch where we say, well, it's not really immoral, whether it's in the sports that we play and we know that a game isn't sin, right? All of these things that we, we, we do and we say, well, they're not sin, but they may fall short of the highest good, right? And God is looking for a generation who are seeking the ideal, who are seeking the best, who are seeking to fill their minds and their time, the hours. We have a finite number of minutes and seconds. Fill those minutes and seconds with the best. Let me tell you, the person you will become will more than be worthwhile, not just in, in eternity, but even for this life and productivity here. Arbitrary measures or direct Denunciation may not avail in leading these youth to relinquish that which they hold dear. Let them be directed to something better than display, ambition, or self-indulgence. Bring them in contact with truer beauty, with loftier principles, with nobler lives. Lead them to behold 
the one altogether lovely. When the gaze is fixed upon him, the life finds its center. The enthusiasm, the generous devotion, the passionate ardor of the youth here find their true object. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice a pleasure. To honor Christ, to be like him, to work for him, is life's highest ambition and its greatest joy. I only covered 10 of my 18 slides, but we're out of time. So I, you can tell I have a passion for education. I believe the Reformation isn't finished yet. And I believe within Adventism, we need to continue the Reformation in educational reform. And it's not only an institutional thing, it's also an individual thing. You may not be an administrator of a school. Um, perhaps you are, however, looking for a school and you want to find a school that is following and is seeking for those principles of educational reform. And wherever you are, it's an individual work of having a personal relationship with God, of bringing that mind into contact with the divine mind. Um, two statements. Nothing is so calculated to strengthen the intellect as the study of the scriptures. If you want intellectual improvement, spend time studying your Bible. Second statement, just as in the case of Daniel, in exact proportion as the spiritual character is developed, the intellectual capabilities are increased. Exact proportion. As you grow spiritually, your academic abilities are going to improve. It's a promise. I can look it up. I don't, I don't have it here with me, but I'll look it up. One's the signs of the times. Um, the last one is. And the first one was, um, I don't know how. Gospel Workers, Chapter 17. Okay, thank you. Um, several of them are in a number of places. So, Let's bow our heads forward of prayer. Father in heaven, help us, I pray, to fulfill our God-given duty and destiny of completing the work of reformation which was begun. You've called us into this world as light bearers, as reformers, to bring your people back to your truth, back to your word, back to your plan. Help us, Lord, to seek the very best. Help us to take out of our lives those things which may not be in themselves harmful or, or evil, but are not the very best that you would have for us, so that we can have the time, the energies, the focus on things which are of the best eternal and even present good. Be with these young people. I pray for... Uh, each institution which is seeking to, to live by these ideals. I pray for Weimar especially here since we're on their campus, that it might be a school where educational reform is ever extended and young people gain that true higher education that will make them most useful in this world and also prepare them for the, the world to come. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.